0: You're listening to the Purpose Driven Person Podcast. This podcast is made for leaders unwilling to give up their desires to be purpose driven. Guys, I made this show for a compass for you to have more purpose in leadership through four concepts, creation, communication, collaboration, and connection in both business and in life. My name is Matthew Leland Cox. I'm the founder of Never Give Up Youth Healing Center, Never Give Up Wellness Center, and Never Give Up Foundation. You can find me at matthewlelandcox.com. Are you ready? Well, let's do this. Hey, welcome to the show. This is Matthew Cox, your host with the Purpose Driven Person Show. I'm excited for this show today because we got some special guests. I got Dr. Dante and Dr. James with the podcast Rolling Bones. And we're going to be talking about some pretty interesting things today. What's going on in society? Uh, with COVID, but we're going to be talking about business because this season is about how to run a business, but also what it's like out there with everything going on. Uh, a lot of stress and I'm excited to have these two guys on. We're going to be talking about how it could, how we can take some different approaches on keeping the stress down, keeping healthy and moving through all this craziness. Um, so I'm excited. Let's get to work. Let's do wow. it. Yeah, Dr. Dante, awesome. Dr. James, welcome to the show. I'm excited about this because uh, uh, Dr. James, we go a little, little further back and Dr. Dante, we've been on a few podcasts and I'm excited to have you guys on the Purpose Driven Show. Uh, but I want to jump in on how things are going. Let's just find out how things going in Texas, right? You guys out in Texas? Yeah, we're right.
1: both in Texas and uh, boy, things are hopping out here for sure. Uh, we're we're doing our best to uh, keep things under wraps, but um, yeah, the the pandemic is still going, and it's still keeping keeping people on the edge of their seat.
2: Yeah. Now, at the, at the same time, I was gonna say our it's it's an interesting situation with Texas. Our vaccination rate is not as high as people would theoretically like, but the severity of disease is not as high as would have been predicted. For the amount of vaccines being given at the time so we're doing better than expected but not as good as we need to
0: so we're seeing progression but we've got a long ways to go is what is that what you're saying is that we're getting there but we need to do a little bit more work more or less
2: yeah it's it's um it's a work in progress
0: how are you guys both where you work at one of the hospitals are you both er doctors or do you do rounds where do you guys uh usually practice you don't need Mentioned, but is it more ER or outpatient? Or James, you want to take it first since we have slightly different
1: environments. We we have overlap. We both work in an outpatient setting in uh, a family medicine world. Um, We do some specialized treatments in the osteopathic manipulation realm, and then uh, we train residents. Plus, uh, we do things uh, other than the uh, traditional route, Uh, Doctor Dante um he has spent more time in the hospital as of late than what i have i actually work a little bit in the uh the the prison system as well um not frequently but a little bit just enough to see what's going on there so we we get a real broad
2: view of the medical field really and then up until very recently i was working in a multiple urgent cares in the uh, North Texas region, which kind of gave really interesting optics on how COVID was affecting very specific, like uh, small towns and whatnot. But I I happen to have left that job in about about a month ago, but for about a year I've been doing urgent care on top of what uh, James has just described.
0: Yeah. We talked about this on one podcast, uh, James and and Dr. Dante, if you guys can jump in, you both are ODs, right? Um, Close, close. All (laughs) right. Um, how does that kind of give the listeners a little background of what, what you guys practice? Well, Dr. Dante, I'll, I'll give you that, uh, that,
2: why one. not? Why not? So, um, we are, uh, DOs. So doctors of osteopathy. Okay, OD. Uh, <laughs> yep. So OD is, I believe that that means right. eye, I think.
1: Yeah. There you go. And that's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Optom- yeah. optometric doctor.
2: So yeah. That's optometry language or OD, <laughs> but, the uh, the DO stands for doctor of osteopathy. It's a, uh, It's an alternate path as opposed to the MD as in medical doctor uh, pathway. It's um, equivalent training, except for uh, a small feature, what ends up happening. The DOs on top of all the standard medical education also end up getting uh, several hundred hours of specific musculoskeletal training, uh, both in anatomy and physiology, as well as on direct palpation. So uh, one of the things that happens that makes the DO degree uh, a separate entity is we, on top of our courses, have to learn a very nuanced and detailed physical exam uh, just to keep things relatively straightforward. So, all right, so we'll listen to somebody's uh, abdomen or whatever if they're having abdominal pain. We'll also get hands-on and try to feel through the connective tissues and the musculature and actually get a tactile, a grip on what's going on in a non-metaphorical sense, right? Like uh, James can attest to this to some degree. We in a very literal level, have a sense of what diabetes would feel like in a leg. Like a diabetic leg feels different in a not metaphorical way than a otherwise healthy leg because of the edema, the venous stasis, the chronic changes to the actual tissue. Um, Part of our training is to be able to pick up on those nuances and texture as part of our diagnostic and therapeutic processes.
0: Yep. Yeah. See, I learned this, Uh, Dr. James, you educated me last time when we did a podcast because a lot of people don't know that you guys can also do adjustments as well. You can do skeletal manipulation. Is that what you call it? Yes. That's one of the many different adjustments that we do. We,
1: we really look for balance. Mm-hmm. And when we find a, a region that is imbalanced, our goal is to return balance to that system. And I like to joke, joke because, you know, it is May the 4th be with you, returning balance to the forces if, if, we, if you're okay with the uh, Star Wars re- reference there.
2: Jesus, it is May 4th, isn't it? Yeah. It,
1: it is, it is. <laughs> so uh, appropriate reference, that's really what we do. Uh, quite often when you have some system out of whack, really, uh, the pain receptors are just trying to tell us what's going on. And then once we communicate with those pain receptors, figure out what they're telling us, then we can eventually calm them to the point where they no longer have to tweet um, by returning balance to that system. It, it's really, it's really rewarding because people leave our office feeling better than when they came into the office, and they love that, and I love that.
0: Yeah, and this is this is awesome because a lot of times when we go to seek doctors, we don't realize there's a difference of an MD versus a DO. Um, because they, they just know that um, they're doctors, but like you guys study a little, little bit more in depth. Uh, like you said, you're, you, you guys study a skeletal uh, system. So this is really cool. On top of all these cool skills you have, you guys also do a podcast called Rolling Stones. Um, how did you come up with the name? I'm just curious. It, well, okay. it's
1: <laughs> Rolling Bones, the, the osteopathic podcast, the name Came from the producer who helped us put together the podcast. We were we were trying to be uh, pithy, trying to come up with some witty name. And he said, Why don't you just do rolling bones? We said, right. "Yeah, Considering what
2: considering what we do is roll backs to some degree. It, it it fits what we do and it's just cheesy enough to make sense on the internet.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I love the spin on it. It is it, really cool um the way you guys are approaching it tell me you know let's let's chat a little about what's going on in this crazy environment right now on media you being doctors you're hearing all the panic um i i mean is there truth to it because as a as a normal person watching the media i'm like going is this true should we be panicking and i i know somewhat you got your own thoughts on it but what what do you guys see out there because people are stressing out
2: so that, that's a really loaded setup. Yeah, of course. Let, let's break that down just a little bit because I want to give you uh, some more meaningful answers than yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's crazy. Give give us a scenario. Give us give us a specific thing. Help us out here.
0: So it's very vague. We just see a lot of hey cases are rising. You know, then I listen to um, podcasters like Doctor Z Dog, where he's talking about you know the fatality rate being very low. Uh, but it is reality because you guys are treating it. You're on the front lines. What are you guys seeing when it comes to what the social media is saying, what media is, and what you're seeing as reality as as doctors treating it?
2: Okay, that 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 we can work with. That's a bit more dialed in because it was like, we can panic about a thousand different things if you want. Let's 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 have fun.
1: <laughs> no, it's not the perfect time to panic.
2: No. no, it's it's not, and thankfully it's not. Um, uh, James, you're right. If I take this one from urgent yeah, care perspective, go, go for it. Go for it. Yeah. Right. So um, the urgent care uh, persona is going to be a bit more appropriate for this one, just because that's the part of my job that lets me be out in the general community in a wide area uh, frequently. Um, It's been a year of this now, right? So March of 2020, in Texas, at least, there wasn't much going on. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of concern appropriately. But for all the work and hustle we were doing, we weren't seeing much of anything, which was pleasant like it was everybody shut up and get ready type of stuff hurry up and wait situation by the time summer hits we'll call it june ish june july james if you want to yeah give me, yeah that's when june. things start getting funky um funky is defined as so in an urgent care most of what you do it, it's it's easy stuff it's colds us scrapes bruises somebody you know, stabs their hand, trying to like get a seat out of an avocado. You patch them up, you send them on their way. Somebody gets a thing in their eye. Um, straightforward, semi-random uh, life things. By July, almost everything we were doing was either screening for COVID, treating COVID directly, or redirecting patients to appropriate hospitals because of the severity of said COVID. There wasn't room. There wasn't physical space to do any of the other parts of our job because all we had um, the resources for was to focus on that one entity because it became so pervasive. Now, some towns took it better than others. Some fo- some towns were more afflicted than others. But for the most part, by summer of 2020 into the fall, definitely by winter, um, it was it was rough. It was it was very rough. I can't say it was appropriate to panic because, in spite of the roughness, there's a couple things that were going in our favor. For one, we know this vaccine was in development. So there was kind of a hurry up and wait and just kind of like bunker down mindset going on. On top of that, there's that ZDogg MD idea, right? It's, yeah, everybody's getting sick, but the fatality rate is not so high that this is a full blown catastrophe. Is it terrible? Yes. Are people dying 100%, but uh, our species has survived other plagues, thank God. And if we can make it past the black death, we can make it past COVID um, trade-off. Um, we communicate so rapidly that biases in thought, like let's say, I don't know, there's however, however many people in Black Death period, by the time a whole village of people died, there was no way to make that into a meme structure. There's no way to make that viral or have the thought process in fact everywhere. Versus uh, here, there's so much volatility in persona, right? Like uh, people hanging on what Fauci says versus what Dog says versus what some random schmuck on YouTube says. It matters here because the amplification of co- of uh, cognition is so much that um, things just did not go as cleanly as we thought they would. And that's that's fine, that's how humans do. If we put it to end of winter into spring, especially with the vaccine going, honestly, we're doing better. Like, I'm not gonna pretend to say we're doing good. However, we're doing so much better than we were before that I feel comfortable saying we are doing good. Is that fair? And
1: we have supportive treatments now that we didn't have. You think about the 1918 influenza pandemic that really lasted for about three years um, with an estimated 50 to 70 million deaths. Mm. And keep in mind that's estimated because we didn't really have any good testing to determine whether or not what these people were dying from, what we suspected strongly. But we didn't have good ICUs. We didn't have good hospitals uh, for that kind of uh, uh, problem. And the hospitals we had were few and far between. Whereas now, if someone comes in really short of breath with COVID, we've got all sorts of different measures to help improve their lung function. We have medications to help with the clotting. We have uh, steroids. We have um, antiviral medications that we've never had before. So we look at the uh, worldwide death total of uh, uh, three, was it just over 3 million? And it could have been so much worse if we didn't have the technology we
2: have today. Just to give a sense of that progress mm-hmm. in the past year so, okay, the vaccine's a big deal, but outside of the vaccine, let's talk about treating this thing. In the first three months, right, March, April, May-ish of having COVID on this, uh, in in the scenario, we didn't even know what to give people for. Like, can mm-hmm. I take ibuprofen, doc? I have no idea. What about steroids? I heard steroids are good. It's I got nothing. How about hydroxychloroquine? It's a crapshoot, man. I just let's figure it out. Versus, it's been a year. We have a lot of data now, and we can actually say, like, yeah, here's how to use dexamethasone. That's a kind of steroid. Here's how to use that to save a life. Okay, ibuprofen turns out it's safe. Hydroxychloroquine, hey, we wish it was good. Turns out it doesn't hit the thing we th- that we thought it did. Forget about it, it's a red herring. But it took it took time to make that certainty, right? Yeah. So
0: the practice, right? You guys had to figure out by trial and error, and and but it was. I, I think what I've seen, if we're talking about uh, the back and looking behind us is that we sped up in one year what it would have took 30 years to figure out, right? Oh, hell yeah. yeah
1: we took out so in much. Let's the, the vaccine,
0: especially in the case of the vaccine. Now, keep in mind,
1: the vaccine development was actually backed by an initial uh, mm-hmm. experimental setup that was developed over 10 years ago. It was originally developed for the original uh, SARS. Uh, 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 coronavirus, as well as the MERS uh, virus, as well. But the other two pandemics petered out too quick to actually finish the research. So we had a backbone coming in saying, hey, we had this process for some other viruses. We never got to finish that research. Let's build on this. Now we have gene technology that rapidly allows us to replicate genetic code, in this case, RNA code, mRNA code. So what it used to take years to develop, now we could say, let's put this on warp speed and I'd quote the name and get this in development. The other thing that you see from an experimental standpoint, most experiments that are developed for these kinds of things, they take a long time. You have to recruit a lot of people. You have to collect a lot of data. And we were able to put all of our research involving a wide variety of potential treatments on fast forward and get them tested to give us reasonable conclusions as to whether or not a, a particular uh, treatment would be viable or not. Hydroxychloroquine is uh, a classic example. Initially, there were several camps saying, yeah, we need to use this because there was experimental data from the original source saying it may be uh, useful, but then we were able to collect a lot of data really quickly from a number of hospitals and mass treatments. And the data said, yeah, maybe not so, maybe not so so useful, but we were able to collect that data much quicker Mm -hmm. and also not just collect the data, but process the data. We have such, such powerful computing systems nowadays that you want to crunch tens of thousands of data points. Yeah. Just throw on your laptop
2: and- I said the computing power of this, the computing power that was used to fight this thing was insane. Like, um, I remember it was at the end of last year's AAO conference. Um, it, it was like a osteopath nerd conference, basically. Yeah, we Where were all we, hanging out at the conference going, uh, we're probably gonna have to leave early. Yeah, hopped into a car and drove the hell out of there. But um, what happened was by the time we got back, okay, so we'll call that T0 for us at least, by a week, we already had the DNA sequence, the RNA expression sequence, the protein expression patterns. Oh, wow. We had a full dozier basically on this enemy. And that was within a week's time. A lot of theories came out of that, as just raw data like, hey, here's the entire profile of what this thing's capable of. It took time to figure out what it really did. But the fact that we had like a roster of what was possible instead of just flying blind was immense. Like, who has that? Like, um, I don't know, honestly, many times in history where we could have seen a new virus, learned all of the potentiality within a week, and then just needed to wait to see which potentiality was real versus genuinely flying in the dark. For example, that hydroxychloroquine, part of the reason that argument had so much power was because theoretically, some of the proteins that thing could have expressed were genuinely susceptible to hydroxychloroquine. Turns out in real life, in actual expression, those things didn't process that way. They didn't actually come out of the woodwork, but the potential for it was there. Hence, its relevance for SARS and MERS, which were very similar viruses. Turns out COVID happens to not have it. But man, dude, if it was vulnerable to HCQ, we'd have it already. Do, done.
0: Uh, hydroxychloroquine, Quinn, did I say that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, for uh, malaria, is that what it, use it they use that for or what's that use
1: it's mainly used for uh rheumatology stuff mm-hmm. like oh, rheumatoid yeah. arthritis and, and those kinds of things.
0: Yeah. It, you just talk about the RNH and those sequence. A lot of the vaccines use those, uh, the Moderna used it, Pfizer used it. Was, was there any other ones that used the, the, R, the Cody that you guys are talking about? Because so I just, I hear those things and, you know, as a, person, because a lot of people are scared to get this vaccine. I I got the Moderna. Um, Same. I, yeah. So I, yeah, me too. I too. Yeah. I thought it was, is seemed like the more better choice because I have a lot of doctors around to ask my, their opinions. Um, but any vaccine at this point, is it good or just, is it a, is it a choice? What do you guys like? Is there a way to answer that? Or is it just whatever's available?
2: So we can play with this a couple different ways. I mean, Broad, broadly speaking, um, and James, feel free to t- talk over me at any point on this one. Um, it ha- we have to take into account what matters to us. So, if the benchmark of success is reducing the rate of infection, then we can have a very clear difference in which vaccine is superior to the others, right? So, um, after full dosing—that's two shots of Pfizer, two shots versus Moderna, or one shot of Johnson Johnson's version, right? By and far, the Moderna and Pfizer have a greater reduction in infection potential, right? Uh, 94% yeah, bit, or whatever. Yeah, 90s. Exactly. Versus I think it was 70-something for the J&J at the most recent, or is it higher now?
1: I think it's in the mid-70s, but what was interesting about that is that both the Moderna and Pfizer were tested out at a single dose, and uh, when their single dose dose was down in the J&J range, and then they found out that a second dose increased uh, the efficacy up to the mid-90s.
2: Exactly, but if we're only talking about rate of infection, then we can say, hey, Pfizer, Moderna, go on, have fun, stay away from J&J. However, if we're talking about lethality, uh, and to put my cards on the table, I don't actually care if you get COVID or not. Sincerely, it doesn't matter to me. I care if you get the COVID that will hospitalize and or kill you, which is a different thing, right? Um, If we're talking in terms of reduction in hospitalization and uh, death from COVID, all three seem equivocal. Equivocal meaning that just get whatever the hell you can get. Um, They all seem very successful at preventing you from having a severe infection. And from the data we have, they all seem very successful at preventing Uh, death from COVID. Now I say this knowing that just this morning, I came across an article stating that four folks who are uh, fully vaccinated have died um, as of today. However, we're still parsing out what exactly happened there. Did they die from COVID or was it some other thing or so on and so forth? Um, What's hard to sort out is people are going to die no matter what, like everybody has their time. And if somebody dies, we need to be able to say, hey, this death was because of a stroke, a heart attack, a COVID infection, or whatever else it is. But in the, t- in, the, in the context of lethality, they are all good. Just get whatever the hell is available. If you're worried about disease burden, however, right? Chance of infection, go for the Modernas or the Pfizer's.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I think know- from a business standpoint, there is something else to consider here. The J&J version is easier to store. It doesn't require such low temperature. So if you're going to store the Moderna, uh, you have to store it at such a low temperature, you have to have a special freezer to do that. And, this, and the same thing with the Pfizer. It's, what, minus 70 degrees, I want to say? Yeah. Storage requirements for those. And um, so that can present itself to be a, uh, a limitation from a business standpoint, because what if your clinic can't afford the appropriate refrigeration equipment. Our clinic was fortunate. We had, we already had a freezer for that because of some other things that one of the clinics had been doing in our building. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't have to modernize to get the Moderna. Um, but some clinics don't have that capability.
0: And, and that's, that's a big expense. It is. And I liked uh, Dr. Dante what you said too, uh, you, you kind of mentioned it, you didn't care if they get it. And people got to understand what you're saying there. This is not going away. Like um, all the H2-1 viruses, um, SARS, all that. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize it's here to stay. We just got to build the immunity up for it. Um, Cause, and maybe you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. It's, it, once you get that immunity, well, it's like the flu, the flu comes in, we have flu season and there's all different strands of flu, right? Um, it's just, we get used to the certain strands that the body can fight if, uh, what do you guys have to say on that? That's kind of where I've been reading data and people. We, we well, got that's,
1: that's what we're hoping. Yes. And that's one of the major major limitations with what the data that we have right now. We don't have long-term data. We have a lot of experience with the flu because the flu hits every year, but this is a new uh, very, uh, variety of coronavirus. that's it's still, it's still a freshman when it comes to viral infections. We don't really know, number one, we don't know how long immunity lasts as a result of natural infection. Number two, we don't know how long in, immunity lasts as a result of a vaccination. And that's why you're seeing new reports from uh, at least Pfizer saying, we might need a booster shot next year. Mm. Um, I know I, I had COVID. And the months after having COVID, I had no antibodies. That doesn't mean my T cells weren't uh, primed and ready for the next infection, but my immunity was not complete. And uh, getting the, I I got vaccinated after the fact because we do have some data that suggests vaccination after having a a native or a natural infection with COVID does seem to enhance immunity and immune response to the, to the vaccine. And if my immune response to the vaccine is any indication, I, I hope it's really strong because that one really knocked
0: me on the backside after the second dose. Yeah, mine too. My second dose kicked my butt. It know. was
2: not a fun shot.
0: No. <laughs> we, we, all, we all took Moderna, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. like, hey, this is good. 12 hours later, nope. <laughs> <I> was, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It was like a truck ran you over. Um, Twice and then backed up. <laughs> yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. That, then after that, I got hit with the flu. We had a 24-hour bug after mm-hmm. days that hit us that weekend, so that was fun. Um, so, you, you know, we're talking about coronavirus. We kind of went into that discussion and all of what's going on. Has this changed business for you guys as doctors? Has Is business not as normal? Was it before t- 2020? What's business wise as doctors every day? Is, is Corona just part of your business every day? One thing that
1: did change was our business model briefly. And what I mean by that is we changed how our patients were scheduled. We spaced out patient scheduling. It changed the mechanics of the day-to-day clinic because now, at least while the, the pandemic as it was at its height, we didn't allow patients into the waiting room. They sat in their cars and then they got a text message when it was their turn their for their appointment. So volume changed. And we saw also CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, they, they, uh, they tend to be the driver of a lot of the financial aspects of medicine. They came out and said, we will pay more consistently for telehealth visits. And so that has changed the model of how we do things. And honestly, I I liked that aspect to some extent because there are plenty of times where a patient needs our attention, but doesn't necessarily need to be in the clinic to receive the appropriate attention. Uh, Unfortunately, CMS has also indicated that they're probably not going to keep that policy in place after the pandemic clears. I would love for them to do it, but. That may go back to uh, the pre-pandemic status, where telemedicine is not going to be as uh, supported as as we would hope.
0: You know, and we—I saw some doctors, you know, speaking on the telemedicine. They struggled with that. Some older doctors that just never knew how to work the technology that, that actually put their their practice out of business uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And they, then they couldn't uh, keep up with it. Did you guys see that as well in the
2: medical community or? So I grew up on MMORPGs and first person shooters.
0: Okay, so you jumped on.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah I, this I was like being a teenager f- with money, for me, for me at least. And I say this as a 31 year old uh, newly minted doctor. Um, there was definitely an age phenomenon. There was definitely a familiarity with the tech phenomenon. Uh, for folks, uh, our med students, especially myself, uh, being so being as young as I am, and a lot of my colleagues, this was honestly a comfortable shift. It was, oh wait, we get to use the, we get to use our laptops to do our, our job now. It's okay, great, awesome. Let's go.
1: Let's do this. Let's do this thing.
2: But um, I also say this as a guy who has been very close to my computer growing up. Right. For those who haven't had that relationship, this was as you alluded to, significantly harder. A lot of time we spent was on teaching our colleagues who are not as familiar on how to do the work effectively, not how to be doctors, how to open a PDF, how to um, invite people into Zoom, how to log into multiple um, different servers for a thing, to network a thing into just basic IT things. And I say basic again, in the context of somebody, James, am I a millennial? Formally speaking,
1: yeah, Yeah. I, I right? think so. I think okay. so. Technically speaking, sure.
2: okay, I know the vibe but, I give is kind of eh. age
1: a, by age, not by attitude, right?
2: Fair <laughs> enough. But, like, you know, for us, it's very natural to say, yeah, just network this to that, cast this over there. The concept of casting something in the first place, mm-hmm. um, which and means not that, involving a fishing rod, exactly. <laughs> um, but no, that not everybody had that skill set a priori, so a lot of our Transition was teaching the docs who are just as good as if not better at being clinicians than us, how to mm-hmm. communicate again, because forget about the technology side, the act of communication across the internet is different in and of itself. For example, um, body language is very different when we're on a screen together. For example, I can see my body way more than I should right now looking at you just yeah. because of how our interface runs. So I, I'm almost a caricature of myself just because of the webcam format Again, growing up with that, right? I've had a webcam to my face since I was twelve. This is—you've learned how to move. Like I've learned what my webcam behavior looks like, versus somebody who forgot to put on pants because, oh crap, I'm on, I'm at work, but I'm not at work. Wait, how do I? You know what I mean?
1: Just don't stand up. Whatever. I didn't know
2: my face looked like that, and now they can't stop staring at their face while they're trying to have. You know what I mean?
1: Right. Yeah, they don't know to look at the camera, not at their face. (laughs) Right. Yeah,
0: you're like eyes are over here
2: exactly and it's it's weird that it's these are small things but because so much of communication like 90 something percent of it is body language the distortion in body language has been a meaningful challenge in this job because if you don't know how to be in this format you come off awkward just mm-hmm. we'll just call yeah. it awkward
1: yeah and for me Uh, I worked as a telemarketer for years during high school and then during some college. So uh, coming from that background, it it wasn't a a difficult transition to say, oh, I got to talk to someone on the phone again. And that's just what we do. And to go off of what Dr. Dante said, um, having that technical know-how made a significant difference. Um. What I did note was um, you do get to spend a little more time with patients actually talking to them when they're just on the phone. Yeah. And I think my perception is the patients view the appointment differently as well. One thing that we notice uh, with some regularity is a thing called white coat hypertension, where the patients in the doctor's office, their blood pressure is elevated just by virtue of being in the doctor's office. But think about it from that standpoint, if you're sitting at home on the couch or at the kitchen table, you're in your surroundings, you're in your normal place where you can be calm and collected. I think it helps people think through what they're trying to discuss as well. So from those aspects, I think telehealth and telemedicine is going to stay um, because it provides a comfortable place for someone to, to quote unquote see the doctor without seeing the doctor, if that makes sense.
0: No, I, I think I, I like it. I agree that it should stay because it gets access to services a lot quicker as well. Um, you know, I, my personal insurance is called Redirect Health and that's all they do is it's it's on the phone. to mm-hmm. point The doctor, you set an appointment by texting, they call you within... 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and you're talking to a doc, and then they send the prescription. It's really fast how it works, but then I can text and, hey, I didn't get it. They they make sure it's very customer service driven. Um, I think it is the next phase in it. We'll see how it goes. I hope, like you said, that CMS keeps it going, because it just it actually helps access to service. But you know the reason I asked that is is now it's that shift of mind like you said uh, Dr. Dante is that you know being in that era where it's just hey, this was just like second nature like my four year old knows how to use his the iPhone better than I did when I was younger. He it, probably it, tries to use the book like he uses an iPhone and scrolls with his fingers, doesn't he it, is, it and and it's crazy because when we were younger uh, dr or, or dr James we I think you're the same age. and, and Yeah, we're the same age. Yeah, that was not even... I, I always ask people, hey, do you remember uh, cassette tapes and they look at you like you're crazy? Like, cassette what? That Eight what? tracks?
2: They I believe track, that jump was two years after I was born for the record, so... because yeah. <laughs> Because I speak that language, but my youngest sister does not. Yes. <laughs> like, the jump was right between us. Yeah, see, and it's...
0: So I think business in itself, what um, what medical looks like now is going to be different. I think from the pandemic, you guys see a little bit of it sticking and changing for you guys as doctors uh, as far as I uh, you got to learn different billing. What do you guys see in the future for us?
2: So it's, it's funny you mentioned that because separate from the pandemic related, like state of emergency changes, our billing processes themselves changed in yep. January of this past year. So separate from the fact that we're doing this whole telehealth state of emergency thing, the game itself actually also changed in and of itself. So almost regardless of whatever we think things are changing, the question becomes, how does the COVID scenario change this new model? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, One of the really big things that happened that James and I have both been really excited about is, um, and we're going to stay away from the technical side for as much as we can, but Basically doctors once upon a time were not incentivized to spend time with their patients in a very formal sense. Like if I spent an hour with my patient uh, doing good work, but I didn't code and write it and document it just so I get paid for it more or less the same as if I saw something very easy and you can only do so much good work out of good of your heart when it stops you from being able to go home in time, stops you from being a family man. Right. But what happened in january was now we can actually bill for our time uh, which is a very big shift because what that means is let's say i spend an hour just for the hell i spend an hour with a patient and i document pretty consistently what the hell i did in that past hour here's why i took that long talking to this person what ends up happening is i can actually get paid for my time and that is such a new incentive structure it means things like counseling become a little bit in vogue again um, so that in and of itself is a big change. Now yeah. we can layer the, the COVID conversation. What kind of counseling is going to happen now that we know that we can get paid to be counselors again?
1: And we we are basically now being paid for our thought process. One of the major um, concerns that we as family practice docs is have had in the past that the money in medicine is in the procedures. So anyone who's in a procedures procedural specialty like uh, surgery uh, um, uh, or orthopedic surgery in, in particular or someone doing sports medicine doing lots of injections and whatnot you if you could load up your your day your day your schedule with with procedures man you can make bank which you still can do well in the procedural side but uh, those of us in the family practice side we saying hey no wait a second most of what we do is not procedural most of what we do is is cerebral It's in our heads and in our hands from an exam standpoint and a diagnostic standpoint. And so now this change has allowed us to be paid for what we're doing from a logical standpoint rather than just a procedural standpoint. And that's huge for us.
0: Yeah, you know, this this is new. I didn't know this change happened because this helped. Because um, what I would hear with docs a lot is that they would get burned out because they're they're having to see more patients to make up that deficit before this billing change. Um, is this kind of excite you guys as doctors where now you can spend more time with your patients? For sure, because now you don't have to load up your schedule with with the 15 minute appointments
1: or 10 minute appointments to get uh, reimbursed in such a way that you can keep the doors open and you can get the, keep the lights on. Now, if you spend the time needed with a patient and it, that time happens to be 45 minutes rather than 15 minutes, your reimbursement is appropriate to the um, the complexity that required that amount of time to be spent. So yeah, I, I like being paid for what I'm doing from that standpoint.
2: My yeah. shoulders dropped about two inches since that change. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. This weird nagging feeling of death and impending doom kind of started to. I saw, I saw my wife. That was cool.
0: Yeah, you you <laughs> right. Home early.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, uh, uh, this was actually, and this rarely happens. I'm still waiting for the other foot to drop. This felt like an actual upgrade. Oh. Wow. Yeah, like yeah. it felt good. Um, our performance has improved. Our parameters have improved. Morale has improved. Um, reimbursement has improved. And that's just not normal. Like something bad has to happen to balance us out. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. But um, no, this, this is actually good. We, uh, we're we messing with reducing our patient volume a little bit to make up for the fact that we're earning more so that we can rededicate that time. Like if I'm generating X amount of dollars and I only need to generate X minus a factor, let me redirect that extra time, I'm that extra money I'm making to just slowing down a bit. It doesn't matter. I'm salaried. It doesn't matter to me, whatever. You know what I mean? If I'm generating over... Screw it! Slow me down. Give me less people. Let me do better work with these people.
0: Yeah, quality.
2: All right, and that's just not a sentence I could have said in December of 2020, but became very viable as of January 2021. Well, it's a
1: welcome change.
0: Yeah, it's a huge change, and I am excited. I remember talking to a uh, doctor's uh, well, the doctor that delivered me, I talked to his son. But that that doctor is no longer alive. And the son said, hey, he was a great doctor. I love hearing stories about him, but dad was never home. This is way back in the day. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, doctor has such a prestige title in it. When you hear somebody hears you're a doctor, hey, my shoulder hurts, and you look at me, they it's the title that when you walk in a room, but they don't realize what sacrifice you guys bring or make for your families. Um, when I was traveling with my friend back in Africa just recently, Uh, He's a doctor, but he's a psychiatrist now. But in his village, everybody was coming and wanting to see him. And so it's the same thing. And I see that as doctors, you guys have a skill set that people want. And this is this is exciting for you guys that you actually will get paid for your time and you can see your patients longer. And so that you're not like, hey, now the patient feels like you're present because um, you're not like saying, okay, well, hey, take this, here's this, and I'll see you later. Let me know if you need anything, you know, because you know that you have every 15 minutes, you got to get going or you get behind. And and so big, big, awesome. What, what caused this change? Was there a lettuce? What do you guys know? Or was it just kind
2: of random? I'll be straight. That's beyond my pay grade. James, okay, if, yeah, you have, I, if you I, have any insight...
1: I can't say that I know, but I know this kind of stuff doesn't have to happen randomly. Um, And the reason why is those who are paying the bills don't want to pay the bills. The insurance companies are in the business not for health and not for longevity, and not for patients. They're in to make money for their shareholders. And so for something like this to have changed, there had to have been some big lobbying going on out at the beltway, to get CMS to say, "Okay, we're going to rethink things because you know there is lobbying going on to keep the status quo because the status quo makes a lot of money for a lot of folks in the in the insurance business. So that's a good question. Now now you've got my interest peak. I'm gonna to have to uh, I mean if I'm I gonna have to go do some reading.
2: I, I mean, if I what? bounce off of what James is saying, I, I can run the dollars and cents just a little bit. I mean, I know that if I spend, somewhere in the order of 60 minutes of the patient, the bill that goes out is about somewhere about 250, 300 bucks uh, mm-hmm. for that encounter. Um, and keep in mind, that's the bill that goes to insurance, not what the patient's accountable for, just to be very clear for the listeners. Cause no, we're not charging the patient 300 bucks to talk to me. That's, that's not the place. However, um, That's regardless of what I'm doing. So if they're having a heart attack and it took me an hour to get things stable and get them to the hospital, 500 bucks, uh, 300 bucks. If it just took me that long to teach them what diabetes is, 300 bucks, yada, yada. Now, the idea is that if we get to spend more dedicated time with our patients, we should be able to treat more complex things in the outpatient setting, prevent them from going to the ER. Let's talk about the ER's billing practices. Um, The level of, multiplication of costs in an ER for the same care, if given in a clinic is astronomical. It's in the order of at least, it's a magnitude of at least 10, often greater, for example. And th- this is a weird one, but it's, it's, it illustrates the the cost difference. A gauze pad in our clinic is something we don't even bother charging for because we don't have to, like why? It's it's gauze, just use it and move on. It's inventory, it's, it's the cost it's of doing business. It's pennies, it's pennies. That same gauze in an ER can cost upwards of seventy bucks per piece. Well and then keep keep
1: in mind that with an ER is often a contracted Department in the in the hospital. So the ER docs don't often work for the hospital. They work for the company that runs the contract for the hospital. So you go you if you ride in the ambulance, it's five hundred cash straight. At, well, not five hundred cash, but five hundred bucks right off the top, if not more, depending on how far you have to go. And then you go to a hospital and you see the ER doc. Well, the ER doc gets gets the bill. Then there's a there's a. I'll
2: be about eight hundred bucks probably
1: and right. then there's a facility fee on top of that
2: about 3k because they're,
1: because they're using someone else's facility to provide that that uh, service so that adds to it and then if that er doc even though the hospital takes their insurance if the er doc is not on their insurance then you get the patient gets the full bill rather than the insurance reduced bill it, it's it's crazy all of the um, uh, charges involved um the flip side is sometimes we send patients to the er because we want to get imaging done stat and if we send them to an outside imaging center well they might not happen till next week even if you do an urgent referral depending on what's going on mm-hmm. but uh, all of those things can add up hospital Hospitals—they definitely have increased costs for everything. And then you're not just paying for the 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 ER doc; you're also paying for the nurse involved with the care, the MA that's involved with the care, the orderly that's keeping the room clean, the meal service, the janitorial staff, the, the room security. itself. I mean, what yeah, was you're, that?
2: You're paying for the room also.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. So you're paying for lots versus versus outpatient, where you're paying for the MA pay the nurse and the overhead for that, versus telehealth where you're paying far less because you have none of that overhead. Um, I worked
2: out of this closet for a month.
1: Which is amazing. He's a closet
2: doctor. Yeah, yeah. This closet was an office for a month. My overhead was was the cost of electricity in the house plus internet.
0: Yeah. And if you
1: get solar panels, then you're generating all your own
0: electricity. And all that. But I love how you guys step that down and, and to kind of come to an end here is that if people are listening to this, like if you spend the money in the outpatient, spend the some, yeah, the sector there, educating them, uh, spend more time, we lessen the visits to the ER, right? Absolutely. ER is. And so, it, I mean, if big business is listening, I, maybe that's what caused it. You'll have to check that out, Dr. James. Why did they think of that way? But um, but it is a business. That's why we, we wanted to kind of go down this route. What is the business? Has it changed? Because um, when you're making the choices as a consumer, um, we, we got to know these things. Like what I want to come to a doc like you two and I want to spend time with you and ask the questions I need to. So I feel like I got the service that I'm paying for, right? Yeah, um, and on, on top of that, one other thing to consider if you don't mind me
1: kind of jumping in here. If you spend the time with the patient in the outpatient clinic and you get things before they become too severe, then you save significant costs because once you go to the ER, because you're having an acute coronary syndrome, you're having a heart attack. That's 350K. Exactly. You have to go in and get a catheterization done. You, You get a lot of testing done. Then you spend time at the hospital. you spend a few days or if you end up in the ICU, an ICU stay is, what, 15000 a day?
2: and pay often? for the bed, yeah, plus the drug costs, plus the med costs, plus the doctor fees. Uh, my kid was in the NICU for two days, my newborn. Mm-hmm. Um, and NICU pricing is a little bit different just because of the type of facility, but gave us a sense of it. For the two days that she was uh, in there, I think the billables were in, somewhere around like $15,000, 20000 Wow. Now again, yeah. that's not what we owe, just to differentiate. Again, there's what gets what the system pays versus what the patient owes are different terms. So if you have great insurance and you don't, your copays are literally zero, you're like, why the hell do I even care? Why does this matter, right? right. But let's talk not you as a patient, let's talk you as a citizen. Um, all that money you're putting into your taxes is paying for this. So like if the system cost a gajillion dollars to run, you're paying for it out of that system, even though it's not coming out of your copay. So hooray, my copies are zero, but my taxes are everything I own. Yeah. If
1: if we can reduce this cost by catching it before it ever happens, I mean, (laughs) diabetes is the poster child for this. Uh, Dr. Dante and I can both tell you stories about patients who didn't get their diabetes taken care of until they were uh, in some severe situations, and those severe situations end up in lengthy hospital stays. But if we can get them early on, when their their blood sugar markers are just starting to be a little bit edging up there, and we can say, "Hey, let's work on this to keep this down," it's going to be a lot less expensive and burdensome on the healthcare system. If we can catch them when their blood sugar's just a little bit high and we can get them some dietary changes, we don't even have to start them on meds if they're not diabetic yet. And uh, keep them out of the hospital in reality, keep them out of the clinic. Because once things get too far down the road, you spend a lot of time in the outpatient clinic and a lot of time in the hospital. And And the whole goal, I tell patients is, my goal for them is to not need me very much. That's a good goal. It's a great goal for patients. Uh, it's not a bit the best business model, but it's a great what, great way to take care of patients. Um,
2: that actually brings up a really good idea, um, Doctor James. So Medicare currently, appro- so we're talking about the new billing approach. They mm-hmm. incentivize us to count to provide counsel. That's just a fun sentence to provide counsel. Um, <laughs> Counselor, yeah, hand of the king, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. But. Um, Medicare actually covers like they'll actually fully cover the cost of one of these uh, low level preventive interventions that James is alluding to. There's a thing called the Ornish diet. It's a subtype of plant-based whole food diet. Mm -hmm. Now not diving into the whole, into the various options of therapy, but that specific move is covered by Medicare. So what is happening is we have a situation where if you are subscribing to that approach, your patient can be uh, counseled to go on that diet they can get it covered by Medicare, which is far cheap. It's way cheaper to buy a patient some kale than to get him a cath lab. Yeah, yeah, that's the truth. That that sounds fun. Actually, kale to cath lab. Anyway, <laughs> it's kale cheaper to buy cath- them kale instead of getting them into a cath lab. And for the doctor, it's better to pay the guy giving the preventive counseling the what the three hundred bucks for the counseling session versus the cath lab doc the ten grand for this for the procedure itself. Um, Not to say that we shouldn't be paying them. If they have to do it, they have to do it. But the issue is there's so much volume in that direction, it's bloating the system. It may be Um, easier
1: to get them to the cath lab than to get them to eat though. I'm just saying. Right.
2: The order of magnitude in savings is at least... I'm running the math in my head, like really dirty math. What ends up starting off as a $300 plus change, this is an order of magnitude decrease of at least 1000 Yeah, Easily. Easily. Just for those changes, which oh. sounds ridiculous because the numbers are made up, but still it's, yeah. Eat part. the
1: kale, don't, don't, don't get the calf.
2: Yeah. Cause it's what? It's three bucks for a pound of kale. Yeah. And, and it's good for you. You just, right. It. Right. Right.
0: Can you put salt on it or you guys eliminate the salt. Probably
2: <laughs> the worst person to, talk to that talk to about that. Cause I will put salt on everything. Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. As I like to
1: tell patients that uh, cook with salt, but don't add it after you cooked with it.
0: Oh, there you go. I'm keep adding it. Like, uh, you know, do a little, well, it, Dr. James, Doctor Dante, this has been awesome. I can sit here forever because I hope the listeners are hearing prevention is the key here. That is the, the healthier model of business when it's a doctor this is what I'm hearing. Yeah. The, the cath lab guy might not like it. You Cause you'll keep them out of the cath lab a little longer. Uh, the
2: cath lab guy might actually be grateful to be honest. Slow down his business, or no, no. For yeah. speaking to ER docs and hospitalists, a lot of guys who go into that field go there to handle the things that they wanted to do. Uh, let's talk about the ER setting. Look, uh, I'm saying this is a guy who likes some high octane things every now and again. If I'm an ER doc, I want to be dealing with dying people. Like, I want to save lives. I want to see some blood. I want to see some guts. Maybe if, I want to see I want to see violence. I want to see like that type of stuff. I don't want to deal with somebody's migraine.
0: Oh, right. 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 Yeah.
2: yeah, and the the psychology of the average ER doc leans on. They want to see some adventuresome stuff. That's why you. That's why you want to deal with emergencies. Not. I want to be fixed nows. You know what I mean? Um, like, um,
1: yeah, the- they they get excited when they hear about a multi car pileup. Right. Versus- because it's what they trained um, for. Like, yeah, let's think about that.
2: It's the, what they correct. act. It's what activates them.
0: Like an athlete ready to go.
2: Exactly. Absolutely. So even in the cath lab setting even though this would theoretically reduce the cath lab numbers, hell yeah. But again, the mission of the cath lab doc isn't necessarily to be shoving cath- uh, catheters into people's vessels, it's to be repairing slash protecting hearts. Mm. So the time not spent having to do these emergent procedures gets to be redirected towards other aspects of the job that have been neglected because of it. I'm going to use endocrine as a prime example of this. Once upon a time, endocrinology was used as the subtype of doctor who takes care of rare and weird hormonal disorders. Like, wow, this is a man, but this is actually a woman episode of Dr. House, whatever. Let's go. That type of stuff. Endocrinology. Um, This person's consciousness can maintain because their salt regulations off because their adrenals don't know what to do. Endocrine. Let's go. Because there's so much diabetes, the guys who train to deal with a bunch of really cool, rare, nuanced, weird stuff are bloated taking care of type two diabetes. And there's no cognitive space for anything else. Um, What we have to account for here is just because we fix one problem doesn't mean that the sum total of problems has been abated. Um, We were trained for a lot more than this chronic disease thing. For example, um, if let's pretend for a second. uh, Actually, let me have fun with this one. James, can I ask you a question? Yeah, go for it. If metabolic syndrome disappeared today, what would you be doing as a doctor?
1: I would be doing more OMT, man.
2: Hell yeah! You'd be a performing arts guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely, absolutely.
2: Likewise, I'd, I'd probably be doing um, some version of my athletic coaching, like working with our military guys and my and my athletes. Same thing. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so what I'm hearing from Bull is if we can do more prevention, you guys can focus on more uh, more solid areas that you can expand on. We then, get to move on.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, if you want to reduce healthcare expenditures in the United States
0: focus yeah. and emphasize prevention it's same same thing with mental health you know absolutely is take care of your it's like brushing your teeth you got to do certain things and i think that's where a lot of us just uh we get kind of stressed and in america's uh society it's all about high stress everybody's overwhelmed we're, we're, or overfed yeah i think all my friends from uh, different countries are like you guys work too much, and we're like, oh, that's- oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's the truth. And you know, the sad thing is, from a medicine standpoint,
1: we spend twice as much time doing computer work as we spend with patients, and that's according to a- actual d- data that suggests that. Um but-
0: most of the time.
1: Yeah, <laughs> uh, we're we're definitely not in the top ten countries for the happiness index, and I I think it's because we are we are um, attuned to that idea that our value is tied to our productivity, right? We get that uh, taught to us from very early on. Only the A grade students get stars on their foreheads and, and only the people who do all of these different things get the accolades, but that, that's really not where our value should be. Our value should be in each individual as a person. Yeah. And if we could prevent a lot of these chronic illnesses. Now, The three most expensive expenditures in American healthcare are due to smoking, alcohol consumption, and obesity, or food consumption. And the obesity slash metabolic syndrome leads to a wide variety of things, from arthritis and gout to mental illness and depression, to fibromyalgia, which is a kind of a thing in of of itself, uh, as well as a whole host of cardiovascular things, wow. and uh, you know, a week if we could prevent those three things, we would be saving boatloads of uh, time and energy and and healthcare expenditures. We could use it for other things. I get to be a sport
2: doctor again.
0: Yeah, yes. <laughs> you fun of the sports. Yes. Yeah. Well. Guys, this has been awesome. Let's sign up. I want to start with you, Dr. Dante. What is something you can leave for advice for the listeners? And then to you, Dr. James, what say you on this? What can you leave them? Because we're talking about so many good things. Sure. Us-
2: so I know we jumped a lot of topics. And just by virtue of what we spoke about, our demographic, for the, our, like our listenership would shift a lot for this too. Like some of what we talked about was very business oriented, like the practice of medicine. Some of it was a bit patient care sided. Um, let me focus on the doctors who would be listening to this or those who would be going to medical. Uh, Given the current environment, uh, one, the willingness to reimburse counseling, two, the pervasiveness of chronic medical disease. If you're getting into this medical game, this is a very good time to learn how to do the soft skills, the counseling, the, uh, the behavior change, the assessments, the mental health things that tend to not get as much spotlight in our traditional training. To those who are doing medicine right now, I would say, learn how to coach. Hmm. Yeah, oh, it, it'll, it'll pay. In this environment, it'll pay.
1: Important. And for, for the patient side, learn how to take care of your body. Learn what to do for your body to take care of it, what to feed it, how to rest it, how to exercise it, to optimize your chances at a good, long,
0: and uh, healthy life. I I would say the same thing. It's just from being a business person and being overstressed. Take a break. I think my biggest piece is working on sleep, hydration, and the fuel that you put in your body, but also um, enjoyment. That's the biggest thing why we work so hard to enjoy. Um, Because if you have joy in your life, you have happiness, you're healthy. Um, but if we're always at the office, um, you know, I don't think anybody that's passed ever said, I wish I would have spent more time at the office. Right. And there's, one, so. yeah. And there's a point in your career, you're going, Hey, I need to enjoy what I'm doing. Like you said, I want to get back to sports. So, you know, this has been great. I, we can do this again. I love where we went with this. I hope the listeners got something out of it and uh, thank you for your time, Dr. Dante and Dr. James. And how can they get to your podcast, Rolling Bones? Um, where can they find you guys? So we're on all of the major podcast hosting sites. So Spotify,
1: iTunes, Google Play, the whole bit. You just have to type in Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast, the whole name. Otherwise, there's another podcast that a similar name. But yeah, go out and find it. All sorts of good stuff and give us feedback.
0: You guys have a Facebook page at, at all or? Uh, yeah, sort we, of.
1: We, we 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 haven't been as much active on our uh, social media as we probably should. But going back to the old yeah, going back to the whole idea of spending time with your family, we've only got so much time in the day.
2: <laughs> so yeah. technically, yes, we have a Facebook presence. It's it's a page called the Osteopath. It's designed to be a landing page for more than just the Rolling Bones project itself. Good. However, uh, sincerely, the best way to get a hold of us would be via the podcast itself, uh, leaving comments, leaving reviews. We leave some contact information over there. If you check out the show, then you know how to reach us. Um, the Facebook page is there for you guys, it's, it's totally a thing. It's just, I think the last time I posted there was in the beginning of the pandemic, personally.
1: Yeah, yeah, about a year ago. Yeah. Uh, our Gmail account is the Rollin' Bones Pod at Gmail com And just make sure you
0: don't put G in the rolling bones, just rolling bones pod at gmail.com. All right. Perfect. So if you're listening, I'm going to sign off. If you're listening to this podcast, if you've heard Dr. James and, and Dr. Dante and what they shared with you today, definitely check out their podcast. You won't regret it. They have a lot of good information, as you can tell, uh, very passionate in what they're working Uh, Go check it out. Download other episodes. Go to our iTunes, hit the stars, you know, smash that button, give us a review, and share this because this podcast is probably one of the most important I've done in preventing your health from your physical health down to your mental health. What they shared today is really where you need to start. Start with you. Uh, Thank you for listening. I hope that you got something, and I look forward to seeing you next time. And you're listening to Matthew. And I'm your host with the Purpose Driven Purpose Show. And I had Dr. James and Dr. Dante on here. And they are VOs. I got it right. Got it. Oh, okay. got it. You got it. All right. Thanks, guys, for being on the show. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you. Hey, guys. Thank you for listening to the Purpose Driven Person podcast. Something I said today resonated with you. Head over to my website. I'd love to give you a free gift to download, but you can also email me at purposedrivenperson at gmail.com. And don't forget to head over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And remember, guys, always continue to push your dreams and never give up. I'll see you next time. Take care.